Ursaluya. Here we are again. The Earth wants you. I'm Irving Boyd. Here we have Savitri D. <laughs> Up at the altar of the mega church, Savitri D. And our engineering producer figure. Live from Dublin. Killian Sunderman. Killian Savitri. Welcome. Well, today we've got habitat defense and habitat destruction. We've got in the first half of our show uh, some very inventive, dramatic, vivid organizing and protest in the canyons of New York City. And in the latter half, we have the habitat destruction that we have to recover from. And we're going to recover from that habitat destruction by just following the earth forward. That habitat, you know, give it half a chance and it takes over and gives us life. Amen. Praise be. First of all, we're going to go to Foley Square. Savitri, what, 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 what is that called again? What was the name of that protest? The People's Press Conference? What's that look you have on your face? Praise be. We have, following that, we have Anclaudes Rivas, one of our choir members, testifying about bikes against deportation. We will confront Donald Trump's terrorist soldiers this week with our bicycles, with our wheels, with our spokes. Kind of spoken word. There's a joke in there somewhere. We have Bernie Krause, and Bernie is a biophonist who records, you know, the singing and the growling and the, the insects rubbing their hands together and the, the gurgling brooks of habitats. And his, his, his recordings of the music of the earth will be an occasion for celebration uh, and a warning. And then finally, Extinction's Got Talent. We'll hear from the performance of the Pacific Walrus. Another threatened life. And this is Reverend Billy. And you know, what, what, what do we have this, this week? We had an action or performance almost every day. That's right. It was a busy week. A rally. Week. The church has stopped shopping. Just couldn't stop mm, this week. Mm, mm, mm. Uh-uh. We went out to CUNY Kingsboro down there at the end of Community Manhattan College. Beach. Beautiful. The ocean coming up right in the windows of the theatrical space. And we were involved in an eco-festival, and therefore we started thinking about sea levels. We started thinking about Hurricane Sandy. Before you know it, the, the ocean's getting a little bit uh, scary. Well, we, we were there with a lot of young people from the, the neighborhood, and uh, it was interesting to, to, to think about the ocean with a bunch of kids who live in public housing on the ocean. I think Breezy Point right across the way there was uh, not only drowned and then it burned. Yes, one of those sinister uh, that that part of events. New York was um, lots of folks just had to move out after yeah, Sandy. Yeah, I really enjoyed performing out there. Th- these community colleges are, are full of the most wonderful young people who are really working hard and a lot of them working full time as they go to school, really self-invented, s- empowered young people. And I was really moved. We sang our song, uh, Man Down, Get Home Safe, which is about police brutality and state 
sanctioned violence against mostly people of color. And uh, in the song, you know, we tell the story of all these people who've been shot by police. And um, and then at the end, we have a roll call. You know, we say the names of people who've been killed by police. And and the kids in the room were saying names that we we'd never heard. They were shouting yes. out names that we'd never heard. And it was really moving. Underscores the degree to which um, um, certain people hear about certain stories of police violence by way of the media, and others uh, just because th you know they, that person lives next door. It's not mm. so much media as as the the media of the neighborhood. It's reality. It's reality. Well, so we had uh, get home safe, people. We're always looking for where earth justice and human justice uh, are the same thing. And we had this. We had the sea in the window and the memory of Hurricane Sandy. And then we had uh, people living there reciting Tamir Rice and Akai Gurley and Michael Brown and Eric Garner and Oscar Grant. And just the names just came out in waves out of the audience. That's right. And you get the feeling that, you know, the, the, the level of anxiety that young people are dealing with right now is just totally different than what I had when I was in my early 20s. You know, the things that people are thinking about, the things that are on their mind, you know, the, the everyday questions. Will I make it home tonight? Am I going to live through this day? And then, will I get to be an old person? Will I have children? Why should I have children? How can I have children? Heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. Will I have stuff. to uh, flee this through. city that is on the ocean? Will I have to? What will I do without my parents? That's right. And, you know, on, mm -hmm. on, thir on Friday, we had an event down at Foley Square with our, our friends and allies at the New Sanctuary Coalition, uh, the People's Press Conference, which uh, was an opportunity for a lot of immigrants in New York City to tell their own stories. Very brave people coming forward and, and talking about what they are going through. Um, and we have some clips, don't we, Killian? They're kind of instructed by events to be silent and be invisible, but they stepped forward into the light of day right there in the shadow of the New York State Supreme Court, and they, they talked on a sound system to lots of people about, about their, their situation as new Americans <laughs> facing Trump's police. No pueden deportar un movimiento. We know the movement was built and a movement is growing. But a movement is not led by one person. A movement is led by all of us. It's Ravi from our choir. The movement is bringing the voiceless into the light. Here's Guadalupe. Hello, my name is Guadalupe Gonzalez, and I'm here, and I'm here to represent my mom. Eight years ago, she got deported, and it's a, it was something strong for us because I have a younger brother, and he been asking me why eight years he couldn't be with my dad, and then now he's here, and he wants to be with my mom, too. So, and he's afraid, and I'm, and it gets me mad that he's afraid that one day he's going to go home, and he's not going to find my dad because sometimes ICE does things that he shouldn't be doing. So, at the end of the day, I'm here to present her because... I want her to be here with me. I'm not supposed to choose between my mom and my dad being with her on Christmas or being with my dad on Christmas. I have the right, I mean, I'm a, I was born here, I was raised here, so if I used to have a family here, but I have to leave, leave them because I gotta choose between my mom. I mean, I'm not supposed to choose if I'm supposed to have my both parents. Then my little brother starts to say, tell me that he sees on the news 
that ICE comes home and they take all like your family. He's not supposed to be afraid of going to school and coming back home and one day not finding my dad. So I'm here to stand for him and for my mom and for my other brother. Like we're gonna be together for this. Cause if not, who's gonna do it? If I don't stand up, who's gonna do it? Oh, amen. And here we have David from Honduras. So it's horrible not being able to be with her. It's very hypocritical, actually, that she is not here. Um, I want to ask the police or all people involved with immigration uh, that bring my mother back because I lived with her for 15 years. and. Uh, it's horrible, uh, the feeling of not being uh, able to share with her and be with her. I love her dearly. Thank you. Right, here's Lyndon. America, America's a great country. Listen, um, I almost cried uh, sitting back there listening to stories, so I'm not trying to um, sadden you with my story. Uh, I'm Basically, I'm going to keep it uh, short. I've been uh, in this country 40 years. And after 40 years, I found myself as a uh, deportee. And that's very sad to me. And, uh, but we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that because I always cried back there. So we're going to keep it, um, try to keep it happy. So um, we all got to stick together and uh, fight this ICE immigration situation. And with, uh, with everybody coming together and giving a hand, we definitely could solve the situation. So we know we can solve this problem once and for all if we try. So uh, I'm not going to stay too long. I just want to thank you for being here. Oh, and, um, Lyndon. I'll Keeping it real, Lyndon. Here's how. That question is, ¿Qué vas a hacer si me llevan? In English, the wor their words mean, what would you do if they take me away? What will I do without them? This is a question that I, had, that I never thought I would face so young. Now there are officers knocking at your door, pretending to be police, but they're ICE. They enter your apartment without any permission, and they take your family away from it. I hope that with your help to help me and others like me, we'll never have to answer that question, what will I do without them? Wow. Oh, thank you for this People. courage to be human, to an openly human, to just talk about the importance of relationships um, is radical. To, to have a healthy neighbor, to have a healthy family, and to talk about it in public is a radical, a politically radical gesture. It, it makes you suspect. One of the things I thought about a lot at the rally on, on Thursday, on Friday, sorry, the People's Press Conference was um, how we have to slow down and listen to each other and hear each other's stories and how caught up we all are in a consumerized pace of life. So uh, standing there in the sun, downtown, listening to these stories and then listening to the translation of these stories and uh, feeling the, the bedrock of democracy there, feeling uh, the original media, the talking and the listening going on. Um, it, it really was radical and sometimes a little bit boring, sometimes like too long or, oh, too much and and then knowing this is what we have to do this is what we have to do together we have to learn to see each other know each other to de-invisibilize these connections we all have um yeah well i just i mean i definitely felt that with um i mean there was one lady it wasn't like i mean we've edited the clips down here 
uh, it was like, you know, two hours of people giving these long, really sad accounts of, you know, these horrible things that are happening. And sometimes you really didn't want to listen to it. It was like, you know, it was hard, but it definitely felt like the right thing, especially there was one woman who uh, she didn't get in. Um, she, we, did, we couldn't put her in. There wasn't enough space, but she's like sick. And, you know, her husband's uh, going. And she lost her husband last December. That lady from Colombia. Yeah. Yep. And that was like, you know, 25 minutes. It was very long and it was really tough to listen to. But like it was such a direct thing. Like she really appreciated that people were listening to her. And it was just it really felt like the right the right thing to do and, and the way to do this. Um, and actually, just yesterday at choir, I asked Cloud why it was important to do the Bikes Against Deportation Action, which is happening this Thursday. On Claudius Rivas. This is Cloud uh, eating his lunch. <laughs> okay, so we're here at the Stop Shopping Choir practice on the Sunday, and I'm with Cloud, who's eating some sweet potato fries and some sort of an omelette. Uh, Cloud, can I ask you, why is it important for us to do the Bikes Against Deportations Action? We have to remind the city that this is a sanctuary city. It's good to frequently protest. It's good to fre frequently demonstrate to everybody that we don't stand for this. We can't just do it once. We have to do it recurrently so that it becomes a habit and it eventually, eventually people get the message and it becomes normalized that this, this is a sanctuary city. With the Trump administration, a lot of bad things are at risk of becoming normalized, so we have to like normalize the, the exact opposite by protesting frequently. Amen. Right, cloud man. <laughs> Sim simple and direct and what the antidote to Trump is, you know, mm -hmm. there it is. Mm -hmm. Normalize the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you, Uncloudis. And Praise let's remember that, that the narratives of people's lives are not packaged, right? Let's remember not to force other people's stories into the shape of uh, consumerized The disappearing attention fiction. span. Uh, the, the, we're so afraid of the disappearing attention span. Oh, my God. The, 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 the it's the attention span <laughs> police. They're here. <laughs> <laughs> the, They're here. We've gone on too the long. Sirens. So let's turn to some news. The sirens of the cops. They're chasing somebody down. <laughs> news from the natural world. The Mariana Trench, the deepest point in the ocean, extends nearly 36,000 feet down in a remote part of the Pacific. A recent study revealed that a plastic bag just like the kind given away at a grocery store, is now the deepest known piece of plastic trash found at a depth of 36,000 feet inside the Mariana Trench. Scientists found it by looking through the Deep Sea Debris Database, a collection of photos and videos taken from 5,000 dives over the past 30 years that was recently published. Go have a look at it. It's fascinating. Most of the plastic seen in the deep sea debris database was the type of plastic that is used once and thrown away, like a plastic water bottle or disposable utensil or a straw. Costa Rica's new president has announced a plan to ban fossil fuels and become the first fully decarbonized country in the world. Whoa. Carlos Alvarado, a 38-year-old former journalist, made the announcement to a crowd of thousands during his inauguration on Wednesday. Decarbonization is the great task of our generation, and Costa Rica must be one of the first countries in the world to accomplish it, if not the first, he said. 
Costa Rica already generates more than 99% of its electricity using renewable energy sources. That man's in danger. He better beef up his security. That's right. Scientists have discovered six new species of peeping frog in the western Mexican states of Jalisco, Colima, and Michoacoan. Wow, six new species of peeping frogs. London plans to ban (laughs) junk food advertising on its entire public transport network to tackle child obesity, among the highest in Europe. Farmers in California, the nation's top agricultural state, are applying near-record levels of pesticides despite the rising popularity of organic produce and concerns about the health of farm workers and rural school children. The latest figures released in April by the California Department of Pesticide Regulation and covering the year 2016 show that 209 million pounds of pesticide active ingredients were used in agriculture. The record high of 215 million pounds came in 1998. Pesticides classified as human carcinogens or likely human carcinogens were applied to nearly 9.2 million acres statewide. Oh, my God. 41% of all fish species studied in published research don't appear to ingest plastics at all. 41% of fish do not ingest plastic. Tropical fish are most likely to ingest plastics, while the silver hake and some salmon and capelin appear not to ingest plastics at all. Would they make a decision not to? They don't eat it. They don't eat it. Interesting. According to estimates by the uh, EPA here in the U.S., emissions of smog-producing substances from mowers, blowers, and other small off-road engines last year were 81% as high as the amount from standard sedans. In the air pollution-plagued Los Angeles area, the small off-road engines category is projected to overtake cars as a contributor to smog around 2020. Perhaps most worrisome, the gas engines... (coughs) Perhaps most worrisome, the gas engines release high concentrations of microscopic ultrafine particles. Ultrafine particles are unregulated. And scientists increasingly believe they are a serious danger. That threat is particularly true for landscaping workers, mostly immigrants, but also a potential concern for other adults and children who are exposed. Ultrafine particles are 0.1 of a micron, or roughly 1,000th the width of a human hair. One, wait a minute. Leaf blowers. Please, enough already. In the first six (laughs) months of 2017, pedestrian deaths rose overall in the seven states that legalized recreational marijuana use between 2012 and 2016 while falling in other states. Pedestrian deaths rose as well in Washington, D.C., which also legalized recreational use of marijuana. California where legalization of recreational marijuana took effect at the start of this year, already has the most pedestrian fatalities, an estimated 352 in the first six months six months of 2017. So my advice uh, to our... Stoner <laughs> friends, don't jaywalk. I don't want to hear it. Be I don't, don't hear it. jaywalk. Killian? Look both ways. Take the earphones out when you're crossing the street. Uh, white Scientists. wires out of the ears. Scientists say surface wind speeds have dropped by as much as 20% since the 1970s. The eerie phenomenon dubbed stilling is believed to be a consequence of global warming and may impact everything from agriculture to the livability of our cities. Over land masses from as far north as Svalbard, just 1,000 kilometers from the North Pole to as far south as the coast of Antarctica, observations show that the wind is stilling 
Conversely, the wind is getting faster around the poles and in certain coastal areas. In a perplexing twist, ocean winds also appear to be accelerating. The becalming, the becalming of the planet. 20% decrease in wind speeds since the 70s. You heard it here. As the Arctic heats up faster than any other region on the planet, once distinct boundaries between the frigid polar ocean and its warmer neighboring oceans are beginning to blur, opening the gates to southern waters bearing foreign species from phytoplankton to whales. The Atlantification and Pacification of the Arctic Ocean are now rapidly advancing. A new paper finds that the volume of Pacific Ocean water flowing north into the Arctic Ocean through the Bering Strait surged up to 70% over the past decade and now equals 50 times the annual flow of the Mississippi River. And over on the Atlantic flank of the Arctic, another recent report concludes that the Arctic Ocean's cold layering system that blocks Atlantic inflows is breaking down, allowing a deluge of warmer, denser water to flood into the Arctic oh, basin. I've had Arctic enough of this. temperatures this past February soared to more than 45 degrees Fahrenheit above normal and hovered well above average all season. Winter sea ice was the second lowest on record across the Arctic Ocean as a whole. And summer ice cover in the Arctic Ocean has declined by about 40% since satellite <sighs> monitoring began. Jesus. Yeah. Christ. And just one more thing. <clears throat> Nearly 50 years after rhinoceroses were hunted to extinction in Chad, conservationists and African authorities are taking the first steps to reintroduce the species to the Central African nation airlifting six rhinos from South Africa to Chad's Zakuma National Park. South Africa is home to about 80% of the global rhino population. So repopulating the African continent with those large land animals. That's the news, people. Oh, just a little bit of positivity. I mean, the stilling They're of the right wind. They're right at the end, but the my God, the stilling of the stilling wind is just too much to bear. I the have to stilling say. of because uh, I'm a I'm a I'm a woman who loves to have the wind in her hair, and I always have my whole life. I would say, if you had to ask me, what's your favorite element? Not that we have to choose, but growing up in Taos, you had wind on those mountains. I love the wind. The idea that that the earth will be calmed is it's just just blows my mind I, I it's crushing to be honest it's so now we remember tim de christopher saying that our grief is ballast it can steady us <laughs> we can use our grief i'm trying tim we can tim we 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 heard what you said it's not so easy to to i was listening and take I'm it into trying. our lives but if our hearts know that sadness regret deep 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 plastic pieces of litter down in the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Mariana Trench. If we have we have the darkness in us and we know it's there and it's a part of living. But hey, Tim, how can we take in the horror of nothing moving? What about the stilling of the world? That's a concept that, you know, that's going to stop our radio show. I think we have to quit the radio show. No, I, no, no. Let, let's stop. go to the, as usual, when we're very sad, we just turn to the Stop Shopping Choir and ask them a question. All right. Save us. Hello, I'm Francisca, and I've been in the choir a little bit more than a year. And what section do you sing in? I'm in the alto section. What's your favorite place on earth? My favorite place on earth is the Queen's Orchard. In Pichingal, uh, this is in Chile, 
and I hope really one day you can come with me because it's so beautiful. There is a little creek that is born right there, like 100 feet up. And so this creek comes out there and these trees have been growing there since, I don't know, like 25 years. And it's very moist and the, the, the trees are low and it's very humid and it's like a microclimate there. And what do you do when you're there? <laughs> you can do all kinds of things there. <laughs> you can eat the queens, you can just listen to the water, you can make up with your loved ones. What's your favorite song uh, that we sing in the choir? Do you have one? I love the human blues. And I love imagination, this voice of the disappearing animals, and just the music also is so beautiful, how all the voices just, just come, come together, together in that song. Lichen. I'm a snake. I just want to share glory bird. with our listeners, especially those in Oxford, England, uh, what I'm seeing in front of me. Out the window, there's a taxi driver who's pulled over and he has wrapped some sort of TheraBand around a lamppost and he's doing calisthenics. He's doing tricep uh, curls. They're not called curls. Extensions. Tricep extensions right now on the sidewalk. So right on the boulevard in the middle of the street. He's New got York City. five lanes of traffic going by him. We make the best of it around he's here, doing, people. He has to sit at that steering wheel for eight, 10 hours. We do what we can. I'm just going to bring it back to Fran yeah. there. Uh, if we've gone through the guy's <laughs> yeah. Pilates or whatever he's doing. Um, the orchard that she was talking about, um, she wanted me to mention, was planted by her mom and her dad which is just a lovely little element to that story. Oh, oh Francisca. My. I guess so, a quince orchard. And that's so romantic to plant a quince orchard with your lover. My word. And, you know, she has a big family. I think that she has five brothers and sisters, I think. Yeah. So they must have spent a lot of time in that orchard as children. How wonderful. We'd like her family to meet the Sundermans of Dublin, <laughs> two big, big families. Well, the, the Chilean 
earth justice environmentalists have, am I right? Haven't they stopped those enormous dams that uh, transnational corporations were swooping into Chile on the, on the invitation of local corrupt dictators? And I believe that they, maybe we need some information there if, if we have a Chilean um, uh, listener in the mega church out there, the, the earth wants you mega church. Please what we do know is that email us at revbilly at revbilly.com. We do know that the Chilean government has r- recently dedicated uh, millions and millions and millions of acres to the wild, basically made parks that are as big as whole countries. <laughs> Doug Tompkins, a former supporter, um, but, but he passed away. Uh, um, when I was a theater person in San Francisco, he would support us. A long-time um, conservationist, he um, purchased sections of Chile and helped uh, helped the Chileans organize that defense against against development. Well, all that money he purchased it with was never his in the first place. So let's not give our capitalist <laughs> friends too much I credit. I know there are those who thanks, accuse Doug, uh, Doug Tompkins for, of Thanks of, for being uh, a billionaire and then saving us all. We really appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> that would be North Face. Are we supposed to mention no, Esprit stop. North Face North just North Stop. Um, uh, let's backpacks North Face. Is that it? Am I getting it wrong? Is that the title? We forget celebrities. Why on are that. you Why are you promoting a, a brand on our show? Why are you giving them free advertising? Why are you elevating the capitalist? I incur- I'm encouraging people to burn those backpacks and those esprit Bermuda shorts. And speaking of burn, we have today a, a wonderful. <laughs> That's a segue play, to where <laughs> to Bernie Krause. A segue to Bernie. <laughs> segue to Bernie. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Bernie I don't Krause. know where I went. We're turning to Bernie Krause now. <laughs> Bernie I apologize is a for Billy and his <laughs> insistence on on hawking that brand on our show because it's embarrassing. Bernie Krause is a biophonist. He takes the, the sound of life and reintroduces it to us. And we realize the extent to which we haven't been listening. So we're going to return to a previous recording we made about a year ago with Bernie. We interviewed Bernie, very, very special um, inventor of, of a simple idea, but an inventor of an idea whose time has come, a very, uh, very special Bertha friend. Go ahead. To introduce Dr. Bernie Krause, who began his professional career in sound as a recording engineer and backup studio guitarist for early Motown sessions. Uh, he later joined the folk group The Weavers, filling the tenor position originally created by the late Pete Seeger, the late great Pete Seeger. <laughs> After receiving his doctorate in marine bioacoustics, he began his second career as a founder of Soundscape Ecology, a new field of study that includes recording, analyzing, and archiving the marine and terrestrial soundscapes of remaining wild habitats. Since 1979, Dr. Krause has concentrated almost exclusively on these recordings and archiving wild natural soundscapes around the world. He's the author of The Great Animal Orchestra, Finding the Origins of Music in the World's Wild Places, and his new book, Wild Soundscapes, Discovering the Voice of the Natural World. Uh, was published last year by Yale University Press. You can find all those amazing uh, sounds at wildsanctuary.com. And Dr. Krauss, uh, welcome to The Earth Wants You. Thank you. Uh, hey, Bernie. 
Hey, how you doing, Bill? Oh, we're having a great time today. All right. Dr. Cross, we start our interview usually by asking people what their favorite place on Earth is. Oh, mine's easy. It's Alaska. That's a big spot, though. You've got to narrow it down just a bit. Well, it's a big spot because it has so many wonderful habitats in it that are still viable in a way. Mm. Um, the it's it's a it's a place. Alaska is a state that's three times the size of France, and it has only seven hundred and fifty thousand people in it. Uh-huh. And you can it's it's the only place where in the U.S. where you can really get away from uh, human habitat. Uh, far enough away so that you get what Bill McKibben calls the wild, where you can go for a week in any direction. Uh, you can walk for a week in any direction without ever, ever hitting a road or a fence, mm. where there's no ranger to tell you about the life cycle of a bear or a wolf, and where, you know, best of all, there's nothing to buy. <laughs> Stop shopping! <laughs> well, that's funny, because I wanted to tell you... Uh, for Christmas gifts, I gave members of my family uh, different recordings from your site, wildsanctuary.com. Um, I just thought they were the most beautiful things I'd ever heard. And I gave Billy uh, the Adirondacks, the loons in the Adirondacks, because that's sort of his favorite ecosystem. I'm a Minnesota boy. You know. He loves listening to those loons. Right. And it was just, it was a great gift to give people, you know, this sound. And they could sit down and, and really, if you close your eyes, wow. It's incredible how accurate the world you've made in those recordings or the world you've recorded is. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about biophonics and what that means. Well, biophonics, it really, it, we're talking about the soundscape. And the soundscape is, <laughs> excuse me, I'm sorry, the soundscape is cl- clearly a narrative of place. It's the language that conveys where we are, whether that place is urban, rural, or wild habitat. And the soundscape is comprised of three basic sources of sound, and these are things that I named in the course of my work. And the first and original source of sound on the planet was the geophony, geo meaning earth and phone from the Greek meaning sound. So geophony are all the sounds that are produced in the wild uh, that are non-biological, like the, the effect of wind in the trees or water in a stream, waves at the ocean shore, that kind of thing. And the second source is the biophony, bio meaning life, and phone again meaning sound, so sounds of all living organisms. And in my work, um, I try to to identify that as the collective sound that comes from all the organisms vocalizing together in a given habitat. And the third is the anthropophony, and that's all the human noise that we create, uh, some of it controlled like music and language and theater. But most of it is electromechanical, and it and it's incoherent, and it doesn't contain very much information, useful information for us, and that's what we call noise. So you've got those three components of the soundscape, and and that is where biophony fits in. It's the most important of all because it's the sound of life. Oh, let's make that sound the sound that's everywhere again. So you pioneered this concept um, that. The, yeah. the niche theory, right? Um, yes. And can you tell us about that? Well, the, the niche theory is just simply um, it's the way that the biophony uh, is expressed in a healthy habitat. For instance, if you go to Africa or you go to the Amazon or to even Alaska, what you find is in healthy habitats, all of the 
voices, the birds, the mammals, the insects, the, the uh, amphibians, all find uh, frequency bandwidth or temporal bandwidth when they uh, vocalize to stay out of each other's way. Otherwise, I mean, it's just like instruments in an orchestra. Uh, otherwise, if you don't do that, if the, if the voices can't be clearly heard in their own channels, then they're going to be masked. And if their voices are, are a part of their um, uh, existence in terms of uh, having a value for their life, uh, they need to be heard. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to survive in that habitat. An unhealthy habitat uh, shows no niche uh, discrimination. So you won't see the various niches and different frequencies because all the animals are competing for acoustic territory. Mm. Yeah, I thought it was so interesting on your website. You talk about how you can really uh, determine the health of a of a ecosystem by the missing sounds, that there yeah. are big gaps in the acoustic uh, landscape. Yeah, um, no, it's way cool. Yeah, so someone like you, <clears throat> for instance, could walk into a space and I mean, into a physical environment, and you would, with your practiced ear, you would be attuned to the missing sounds. And I, I just wanted to play a recording uh, to demonstrate this to our listeners uh, that you sent us uh, Sugarloaf, uh, is it Mountain, Sugarloaf Creek? No, it's Sugarloaf State Park. Sugarloaf it's State Park. And before we give it too much away, let's just let our listeners hear that sound. Sure. And then uh, you can explain it to them. Had a, Go I ahead, had Bernie. A, I had a thought when we were coming on online today, and you know, and, and the thought was, you know, we live in like the strangest of times. I'm, I'm almost 80 years old now, so I can speak to that issue now. And uh, you know, times when when Canada, just across the border, is an epistocracy, and that means that the, the, the electorate is informed and literate. And it's veering toward a state of post-nationalism, which is really interesting, where immigrants are welcomed and celebrated. While here in the U.S., on the other hand, we've opted for an illusion of certainty from leaders who have absolutely no cultural, historic, or scientific, or moral literacy. It's an apocalypse of, of total mediocrity. Well, I don't know. Beauty contests... You know, that's a good education, you know. Uh, yeah. Casinos and... Uh, well, I think so. I, I think you're right. Being a uh, real estate mogul and not paying your contractors, I and mean, he's got a wonderful background. Well, you know, we can go over that again. But firing people in public? Well, yeah, he, yeah of course. You're fired. These guys, uh, yeah, uh, these guys lack any sense of the living world around them, and to gain power, they instill fear of the other. And they promise relief from conditions that simply don't exist while patently ignoring those that are real, as we all know. You know, Gandhi once said non-cooperation with evil is as much a responsibility as cooperation with the good. Right, right. We've got we to gotta pay some attention to that. Stop I know, shopping. I heard Bernie. that you were uh, working with some other scientists removing your data from our hallowed shores and making oh, yeah. sure that your data. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, well, anybody who has data that speaks especially to global warming, and uh, one of the things that 
note here on the show is that over 50% of my archive comes from habitats that are either altogether silent or they no longer express themselves in any of their original oh, form. Oh, and, and that's both marine and terrestrial. We're talking about coral reefs as well. So um, uh, when I realized that, Na that the folks at NASA in the climate um, department uh, are beginning to transfer their data um, out of the country and uh, to different uh, areas. Safe places. And, and, and safe places and backing it up. Uh, I've got a huge amount of, of bioacoustic data here and uh, have been um, not only storing it but also making sure sending it um, to different places around the world. Fahrenheit 451. Fahrenheit, exactly Fahrenheit 451. Oh, exactly my gosh. That, what form does it get sent in, like on a hard drive, or is it stored on multiple clouds in different places? I mean, where is this data going to banks of, of you know, hard drives underneath mountains? And well, we want to. We don't want to tell exactly. James Watt where. where no, I know, but I'm just curious how <laughs> that works technically. It's done in different formats. Uh, because if one format gets compromised, uh -huh. the other formats will be able to survive. Uh -huh. um, and it's being sent, you know, all over the place. I'm actually talking to somebody as an art concept to um, uh, get all these hard drives and, and, and send them off into space. Mm. If it was really Fahrenheit 451, we would be training school children. We'd, we'd give each, each person a, a species to memorize, right? Yeah. Exactly here's, here's right. The, here's the cloud-speckle-breasted right. cuckoo from Costa Rica. <laughs> <laughs> and how is morale amongst the scientific community that you work with? Well, it's pretty low. But, you know, i got to tell you something. That this assault on science, they talk about an assault on Christmas. This assault on science has been going on now since, right. the, since the Clinton administration. Oh, so it's, not, it's, it's nothing new with this particular one or with the one preceding it. I mean, Clinton really started that. There's a book called uh, Science Under Siege, which uh, it talks about, you know, how this has all come about and uh, how it's manifesting itself now. And it was written, the book was written maybe 10 years ago, but it's a fabulous, interesting piece to uh, check out if anyone's interested in what's happening with the scientific community. I mean, in my experience amongst the scientists that I've known in my lifetime, there was always this remarkable long view, right? And you would talk yeah. about the sort of catastrophic things going on in politics and culture. And, uh, you know, the scientists in my life always, they, they hewed to the long view. And it was always sort of reassuring at the same time, a little bit confusing. I always thought, well, I know, but what do I do with the long view? Here's my life and here's my ethical position and the problem of, you know, getting up in the morning, what do I do all day? So um, now I find we're at this funny juncture of the long view and the, the catastrophe, um, you know, with, with climate models sort of breaking down with Arctic seamelt and, uh, you know. Accelerating Arctic seamelt so that the model. Well, Alaska, the reason I like Alaska so much is because it's so telling with regard to this. When we went up to Alaska to do the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and record that in 2006, keep in mind, that it's never been recorded before. Mm. So when we went up in 2006, um, I took three teams with me to record there uh, in three different spots. When we, we had 21 spots identified that we wanted to hit, but in June, June 1st of 2006, we couldn't land at 18 of them because the tundra was too soft. Oh, wow. 
And so we were left with only three, a choice of three, and we picked those three and, and, uh, and recorded there. But it was really touch and go because things had changed so radically. The permafrost was melting. It was just, you couldn't. Well, Bill. You couldn't. Bill, more than that, more than the permafrost, the, where the American robin, a very common bird in the lower 48, where the American robin had never been further north than Fairbanks, which is kind of located smack in the middle of the state. Right. It had never been, lo- never been seen uh, north of Fairbanks. The American robin was already well into the refuge, which is way north of Fairbanks, several hundred miles. And, um, and it, it was so uncommon that the Native, American, uh, Native Americans who lived in those different villages from uh, Arctic Village on north to Kaktovik, um, they didn't even have a name for the bird. Wow. <laughs> this is just a new bird. An all, it's a an new all... bird. <laughs> Did you tell them Robin Redbreast? <laughs> I, I didn't Make tell a suggestion. It would be fascinating to hear what name they came up with, you know. Yeah, oh, man, I, I I find my my uh, my effort to uh, to keep the radio uh, repartee going. I'm, I'm slowly sinking into the melting permafrost of well, my own what silence. What you might not know, Doctor Krauss, about uh, your your old friend Billy is that when he was a kid, he used to go up in the uh, 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 northern Canada with his teacher, Doctor Moriarty, and they would uh, tag and look for uh, the snowy owls. So, <laughs> no, that's way cool. Yeah, and you know, if people want to hear something from from Minnesota, uh, by all means, check out my TED talk because I have a piece in the TED talk that ends that that uh, particular segment uh, with um, uh, from a friend of mine actually from Minnesota who was recording at this pond for many many years, and uh, it was formed by a beaver dam and a beaver family that was at this pond. It was a very remote area. There were no other humans farms around there, so they had no reason to be bothered by the, the family there. And then he was recording one spring about six or seven years ago when uh, out of nowhere a couple of game wardens came onto the scene, dropped a stick of dynamite down the dam, and blew it up, killing the female and her offspring. And he stayed around that evening, uh, he was so shocked by the violence of that. He stayed around that evening and recorded the lone male beaver that had probably oh. been wounded swimming in, in, in oh circles looking for its mate and and offspring. And it was crying out in a way I have never heard before. This was the saddest sound I've ever heard coming from any living being, whether human or other. But you've got to hear this. This is really, it's really an extraordinary uh, lament. And um, You played it, it, that at a TED Talk? Yeah, yeah. Were people uh, crying? Yeah, if you take a look at the signature in my... Uh, in is my, that at wildsanctuary.com? Yeah, no, or it's not it's a wild a YouTube? Sanctuary. Is it a YouTube? Not, it, you can see it on YouTube, and you can see it. Just go to TED and, and uh, Krauss, and you'll, you'll get that. You know, if that doesn't if if that doesn't energize us into uh, active defense of of this life here on this earth, that's got to be, isn't that? 
Well, like in any relationship, listening is so critical, right? And so our relationship to the earth, we, we also have to learn to listen. We have to learn to hear mm. what it's telling us. And, and when Dr. Krauss talks about <coughs> the health of an ecosystem and how you instantly recognize its health or ill health based on what you hear or do not hear in that place, um, it, well, it gives me a very tender sensation. It gives me a feeling of, of care and, and, and concern um, but it's it's not just my regular care and concern. It's one that's based on on a listening state, a, a, an empathic, compassionate state. So I advise everyone to spend a little bit more time listening to the earth, less time thinking, more time listening. We have you know that silencing going on right now here in Brooklyn. We have uh, songbirds are supposed to be fifty percent down. Um, when the birds are singing. That's a signal to us that 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 life is is going forward. That That's thing, right. Things are good. That's things right. are healthy. Everything's all right. When there's this this silence that we're this silence, this stillness, this n noise, this this uh, dystopia that we're careening toward in the in the clutches of capitalism so, so somebody save me from this oh, this yes. sentence this extinction bad got radio talent. let's listen to some animals now <sighs> extinction's got talent the pacific walrus the pacific walrus is a subspecies of walrus found in the bering chuchki laptev and east siberian seas the reliance of walruses on sea ice for resting during the summer foraging period makes them particularly vulnerable to changes in climate and the associated loss of sea ice with tusks like an elephant and the body of an overgrown seal, the Pacific walrus is a blubbery beast. And the largest one ever found was m m longer than 16 feet. Try to imagine that. This ungainly animal often gathered on moss on ro rocky beaches or seen riding ice flows dives into the water, water and rhythmically transforms into a wave gliding through the sea. They are incredible swimmers, completely at home in their Arctic environment. Walrus do not use their tusks for feeding. They rely mostly on their whiskers, also known as vibrissae, to help <laughs> them find prey on the seafloor. Walruses <laughs> live to be about 20 to 30 years old. That's a pretty wide guess, 20 to 30 <laughs> years old. The males reach sexual maturity as early as seven years, but interestingly, they do not typically mate until fully developed at around 15 years of age. So that's a long development time. Must be cold up there in the Arctic. Eight years of and here we have sowing the sound, your wild oats in the Arctic Sea. The sound of the Pacific walrus. Some kind of environment. The haunting sighing from the north. Habitat defense. Habitat destruction. And then we're brought back. We're brought back to life. By the Pacific walrus. By the sounds brought to us from the mountains. The biophonist 
Dr. Bernie Krauss. This, uh, this hour that we've spent together um, really has addressed um, the horrors of, of a world that has lost its motion, um, the stilling of the earth uh, that was the, the centerpiece nightmare in Savitri's News from the Natural World. Um, uh, just hard to wrap your head around that one. The, the wind and the ocean currents slowing down. The silencing and the stilling. Um, it makes you turn and look at this cultural economic system of ours. What does it mean if everything is commodified? What does it mean if everything is on the market? It apparently means the end result is that motion itself is extracted, that sounds, natural sounds, are somehow um, ground into the maw of profit-making. We have, we have got to save ourselves. We've got to, we've got to ask the earth to save us. We've got, we've got to rise into the grand duet with the natural world that the, the, the Lakota uh, were talking about at Standing Rock when we were there. There's a, there's a partnership that must take place. But this, when, when our friend Cloud said, we must normalize the exact opposite of, of Trump, um, that would be to go to motion from the wall, to go to clean, natural, nourishing water from the toxicity of, of the companies that he corruptly meets with, the Monsantos and the Bayers and the Exxons, the Coca-Colas. That is to let the movement flow when we say movement, we say human movement. We say, we say natural movement. We say, we say animals. We have been getting emails from the, 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 the native peoples of the Sonoran Desert, and they're, they're saying we must be in motion. Life is motion. We hope that somehow uh, in, this, in this hour of talking and listening together that we have, we have, we have turned away from the silence and turned away from the stillness of death that has been directed at us by, by capitalism. Earthalluya. We're going to stay in motion now. We're moving. It's a movement. And it's a singing movement. Amen. It's the end of the world. Join it's us the this beginning Thursday of a new one. for Bikes Against Deportation, May 17th, 5 to 6 p.m. Houston and Varick in Manhattan. We ride for freedom. <laughs>